0: Good? You guys, everybody's okay? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. 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 I'm Pastor Joe. How are you guys doing? Good? Seriously? Good? Yeah, you're all trapped. I just asked you a trick question. Seriously, I did. You didn't know it. I asked you a trick question. What do most people say when you say, how you doing? Fine. Doesn't matter if your life's falling apart. Doesn't matter what you know. You know if your house just burned down. You know most people say fine. They say okay. And what I'd like to talk with you about today is the the danger of being okay. And um, <clears throat> so that you know, uh, I sometimes have been told that I talk a little bit fast. This is the first caffeine I have. So so is, so if it seems like I'm talking fast and not caffeinated, it's wait till the eleven o'clock service when this and this gets together, and there might be a a psychotic break, I don't know. All right, so um, what I mean by the danger of being okay is this, is simply this, Uh, Pastor Ron asked me, they were away for a couple of weeks, um, and and Pastor Ron asked me to fill in and finish this, finish mended, and one of the things I thought over the last couple of weeks, and if you haven't Especially, uh, especially, Mike Kane did a really good job uh, last couple of weeks um, doing this. And if you haven't gotten that, you probably should. But one of the things that I felt kind of reverberating in the brainwaves of people as they were sitting watching this, there was just this this undercurrent that I that I kind of felt. And it was something that went something like this: That's really good that God mends broken hearts. That's really good for those brokenhearted people. It's really good for people. ...whose lives have been knocked around... ...and uh, and God is putting them back together again. But I'm okay. And so that's what I want to talk about today... ...is the danger of being okay. You see, the problem is... ...that um, that we can create masks... ...and we can create them out of uh, lots of types of things. So what I would like to do... ...is, uh, is demonstrate my total geekdom... ...and talk about uh, a city in uh, Asia Minor... ...called Laodicea. And um, <clears throat> so... Laodicea, and I did a little bit of research. Actually, I did a lot of research because I'm a geek. Um, uh, Laodicea was, um, was founded in roughly 260 B.C. Under, uh, under Alexander the Great. Actually, Laodicea is named after the wife of one of his generals. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to... We have a couple of uh, uh, pictures, and the first one should be a... No, the other one. That's a cool picture, too. We'll get to that. But the other one should be the map. Okay, there's a map. Okay, so when I was looking for a map of, um, of where Laodicea was, Laodicea is in western Turkey, and of course, every time they showed a map, they showed mostly Turkey, and I was like, wow, we won't get that because, you know, we're Americans and we can't recognize anything on a map. And so if you look over there, you can see Italy. So once we see the boot of Italy, then we kind of, right, we, kinda, we can kind of figure this out. There's Italy, there's the Mediterranean, right? So you have Italy, which would have been the Roman Empire, then you have Greece, that would have been the... Greek Empire, and then you have kind of the Mediterranean Sea down along this side over here. There's Jerusalem down on the bottom, Northern Africa, and there's Turkey. Everybody got that? Little geography lesson. Okay. So the significant importance of Turkey was and still is. Turkey is still a uh, Turkey was the first Middle Eastern country to be admitted into NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. anybody know why? Because it's strategically important. The Black Sea is, represents a warm water port. ...for the then Soviet Union, and they wanted to keep, uh, they wanted to keep Western alliance uh, blocking them from that. And so Turkey has been and is today the bridge... ...there is literally a bridge... ...has been and is today the, the bridge between the East, or um, Asia Minor... ...and the West, which would be Europe, right? And so, <clears throat> consequently, all trade... ...if you were going to trade with what was the West... So after the Assyrian and Babylonian empires had spent themselves and you had the rise of the Greek empire and you had the rise of the Roman empire, any trade that came from stuff, if you wanted to get stuff out of over here and get it to over there, you went through Turkey. So a lot of times we, we read this stuff in the Bible and we think that these cities and towns that are mentioned in the Bible and the places where, uh, where Paul wrote letters to, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and stuff like that, we think that those places were kind of little third world backwater towns probably because today that's what they are. But at the time, that would be the rough equivalent. What you're looking at here is the rough equivalent of the 95 corridor between Boston and D.C., right? That's what you're looking at there pretty much the center of the world. Think about the 95 corridor between Boston and D.C. You've got Boston, you've got us, right? You've got Rhode Island kind of down in the corner. There's a little weird, but you've got Boston, you've got us, you've got New York, northern New Jersey, Philly, Baltimore, D.C., some pretty, you know, major places, right? That would have been all, all down through Turkey right there. Now, <clears throat> those the, the map I got says the early churches, and so those those little red dots that are supposed to have crosses in them if we had like an HD thing there, um, those are the seven churches that are referenced in the book of Revelation. And so you notice like Ephesus is there, Laodicea, Sardia, right? Colossae is right over there. And so there's the Colossians, the Ephesians. So all of that stuff is over there. The reason why is because if you look right over kind of as the... As the coastline goes and the Mediterranean bangs the left right there, that's Tarsus. Now, anybody knows anything? Uh, if you've done some study of the of the Book of Acts, you know that Paul, when he was converted, uh, he went off into uh, into Arabia for about three years, and then people didn't believe that uh, that he was really a Christian. And so, a guy named um, Barnabas, his name got to be Barnabas. They called him Son of Encouragement. His name was originally Joseph, and he he grabbed Paul by the hand and said, "Come on, I'm going to." send you, I'm going to show them, show you to the apostles, and the apostles said, well, that's cool, we really believe, down here is Jerusalem, we really believe that you're a Christian now, Um, uh, but why don't you go do something with your life? And so he moved up to Tarsus, and he uh, just started making tents and figuring out what it meant to be a Christian for several years, until they called him over to Antioch, which is that kind of thing that looks like the Finger Lakes right there, they called him over to Antioch, and they founded a church there, and that became the center of Christianity, Aside from Jerusalem, that became the center of Gentile Christianity was Antioch. And so all of those churches were things that Paul planted. And so that was the major, and that's a lot different today, isn't it, if you think about modern Turkey and Christianity in modern Turkey. Turkey was the center of Christianity, specifically Gentile-based Christianity where Jerusalem had the the Jews. Does that make sense? All right. Specifically, let's talk about Laodicea located along a river called the Lycus River in western Turkey, and it's between two cities, um, Hierapolis to one side, and Colossae, where the book of Colossians comes, to the other side. And very similar to Southington, you know how Southington's kind of a valley down in here, and you've got the kind of the mountain, the ridge line, it's not really a mountain, but you've got the ridge line over to the one side where Wolcott is, and then over on the other side you've got where where, Castle Crag and Meriden and, and into Berlin, that ridge line there. So you had a ridge line and a ridge line, and a valley down in the bottom, with a river running through it, the Lycus river that's where Laodicea was. Now, if you had a camel caravan, and you were bringing goods from Asia Minor up into Greece, and you had a choice of going up the hill and over through Woolkit, up over by Castle Craig, or down Route 10 through Southington, which one you taking? It's the path of least resistance, right? And especially because it was by a river. So Laodicea was a major commerce center. And it was a stopping point on the, on the major trade route through Asia Minor. Consequently... It became a very wealthy place. One of the same reasons why Baltimore exists is because there's a really good port down there and ships would come in and come out and it was a, and it was a good port city and the trade made it wealthy. The trade made Laodicea wealthy and they were a wealthy place. Even though it looks like it's inland. Well, it's not up there anymore, but even though it looks like it's inland. All of the goods that went from Asia Minor first to the Greek Empire, then to the Roman Empire, went through Laodicea. Now, the interesting thing is it got so big that the water usage outstripped the uh, the Lycus River. Now, the cool thing was is that on the one side, you had Colisei. Colisei was like Fiji. They had these, uh, they had these springs that, that fed up through the uh, the mountains, and they had these mountain springs up in Colisei. And so they built an aqueduct, and it brought cool water, cold water, down the mountain and into the city to help supply the city. On the other side... On the other side of the mountains was Hierapolis. Now, if we could put up um, the, the other picture of Hierapolis. So, on the other side of the ridgeline, this is Hierapolis. Now, that's not faded out. That's white. Anybody know what that is? Is that snow? It's not snow. It's, 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 a, it's actually calcium and lime... And uh, those are hot springs, that whole area. One of the reasons why it's not a big commerce area anymore because there's lots of earthquakes tended to destroy your city. And, uh, and so there, there, was, there was lava. One of the reasons why there was this thing, there was this magma underneath Hierapolis on the one side and, and it would create hot springs. If you've ever been to a place where there's hot springs, there's hot water boiling up through the ground. And so what this is, is these are people bathing in the hot springs because it's kind of cool, like mineral waters and everything. And this this calcium and lime cliffs goes all the way down. It's like hundreds of feet all the way down to the valley floor below, which is pretty cool, right? And so there's a lot of people that went up into Hierapolis and kind of bathed in the hot springs and everything. And one of the things that they tried to do, the, uh, the Laodiceans, was they said, well, we've got cold water coming from Colossae, and we will bring hot water down from Hierapolis. And so they built aqueducts, ...to bring hot water down from Hierapolis... ...so they're like, hey man, we got like hot and cold running water. This is going to be awesome. There was only two problems with it. Because you see all the calcium and lime deposits up there? What do you think happened inside the aqueduct? Yeah, it's just what happens in our, in our pipes here in, uh, in, in central Connecticut. You get these hard water deposits and, and scaling and everything. And you can go there today and kind of see these aqueducts... ...that they built that were really big and they're now really small. The other problem that they had was... ...they didn't have a really good way of insulating it. So although the water was hot in Hierapolis, by the time it came down the mountain and across the valley and, and, and to where they were, what temperature was it? It was warm. It was lukewarm. So it really wasn't all that good. And as a matter of fact, the cold water that came from Colossae heated up and the hot water that came from Hierapolis cooled down and Laodicea wound up having lukewarm water. If, you're, uh, if you know anything about Laodicea, you probably see where I'm going with this, huh? So, the interesting thing, however about those cliffs is that what they did is they caused, the, they caused the calcium and lime and other minerals to run down the side and they mixed with the clay that was down at the bottom of the, of the, of the cliffs in, uh, in uh, Laodicea and they made a highly mineralized clay. And the people of Laodicea, what they did with it <coughs> is they made, um, they made like a chamonix right? They made, uh, they made eye salve. They made medicine out of it. They made eye salve and ear salve. And they sold that. Laodicean eye salve was sold all over the Roman Empire and all over the Greek, the, the, the Greek Empire, which, as you know, if you know anything about history, was basically all over the known world. The funny thing is, is later, later scientists have gone back to see if it actually worked. And it didn't actually work. But they had really good salesmen. And so, so you know... Just like today, right? Just like, drink this and it'll, you know, know, results, you can lose weight. Results not typical, right? And, uh, you know, all that stuff, right? Um, Am I right? And we do the same thing today. But, man, they were selling Laodicean eye salve all over the place. Let me tell you a couple of things. Several things happened as a result of the wealth that came from commerce and as a result of them then trading and selling this eye salve and medicine there. One they founded a medical school, the the Eastern Medical School, instead of being in, in Athens and then being in Rome, the medical school for that whole region was there. So you had people with, like, little chariots that had bumper stickers that said, you know, Laodicea in med school, right? And so they were going, you know, your kid went to Smyrna, kind of state school. My kid went to Laodicea, good school. And, uh, and so then they had, so they had that. They had a medical school. They had this trade going on. They had, they had a medical uh, manufacturing facilities that they sold stuff all over the world. And the other thing that they did was a lot, of the, um, a lot of the people that were coming from the east were bringing materials. They were bringing silk, and they were bringing other, you know, uh, they were bringing silk and wool and stuff like that to trade it in the east. Well, what they did was they said, stop, we'll buy it. And they bought all that stuff and then manufactured clothes from it and sold those clothes to Rome and sold those clothes to Athens. And so they had a really big clothing manufacturing. So the idea of of getting your clothes from Laodicea was really cool. So let's just think about this. Major trade route, medical school, um, medical manufacturing clothing manufacturing, made Laodicea one of the richest, extraordinarily rich, richest uh, cities in the area. Between them and Smyrna, they were probably the richest, certainly richer than anyone around them. They were richer than Colossae, they were richer than Smyrna, they were Smyrna, the church in Smyrna was actually very poor, and, uh, and so they were richer than anyone around them. It's interesting what wealth can do to a person who follows God. If you're not careful, listen to what Jesus, appearing to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, says, I want you to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia. Those were the ones that were are putting up there. We get to the church of Laodicea in, um, in chapter 3, and the rest of today is going to be a giant parenthetical statement, meaning we're going to start here in, Roman, in Revelation 3. We're going to stop, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, and we're going to come back to it. But let's listen to the first part that he says here. It he says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things say the amen, says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he's saying, this is God himself speaking. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of your mouth, out of my mouth. Now let me just stop right there and bring a real point of clarity to this, because a lot of times, a lot of times, here's what we hear: I wish that you were on fire for God, or I wish that you were cool and refreshing. But you're just lukewarm, and you make me want to puke. And that's not what it says. It actually, when you pull it back, is much worse, because I got this from a pastor friend of mine. Uh, we were talking about the other day, and, and, and he had a different insight into it. He said, we need to remember that Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. And the image that's there is, if you will, Joe, he said so the image that's there is this, that the bridegroom, the groom who on his wedding day has saved himself for his bride, and is up there on his wedding day, and, he go, and he's passionate about his bride, and he leans in to kiss her, and she, he, he, she kisses him back, And in that kiss, he realizes that she doesn't love him, that she loves someone else. And it makes it feel like he was kissing his sister. And he wants to go, and wipe that kiss off his mouth because it's a kiss of rejection. And that's what the lukewarmness is, is it's a love for someone else. And this is what he's actually describing here, is that he says, listen, I wish that you were cold, or I wish that you were hot. But the fact is that you have stuff, but your passion is just for something else aside from me. And it makes me, it makes me want to spit that out. I come to you with passion and love. We need to remember that Jesus is the, is the groom. He, he loves us. He's passionate about us. He's not angry. This is something that he says it's, it's hurtful. Because, not because of something that he's angry about, but because of our lack of passion back for him. He says, it makes me want, I will vomit you out of your mouth. Now listen, here's what, here's what it is. It says, and if there's any question as to what, what that other, what the other thing that he says is. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. See, that's the thing. He says, I've come to you because I'm your answer. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, you're kind of nice and everything. And maybe a little cute, but you know, I kind of got everything I need. It says, but what you don't realize is that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. You hear what he's saying? He's saying you're poor, they were rich. You're blind, they had medicine. You're naked, they had clothes. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is that a lot of times, and this is the start of the parenthetical statement, a lot of times we we fail to realize um, the sarcasm of Jesus Christ. Did you ever think about him as being sarcastic? I think it was awesome. We miss his jokes. We miss miss the fact that he never answered a question. Jesus never answered a question directly. He was always like, what do you say? What do you think about it, right? And we're going to look at some of that right now. But Jesus was sarcastic a number of times, and the reason why he employed sarcasm was, was to get a person to think and to open up their eyes to understand for themselves what the real answer was. And I want to give you a few examples of this. And the reason why we want to talk about this right now, right here, is because a lot of times our eyes are closed and we don't really see. And so we skim through the Bible with a preconceived notion about what Jesus really means. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, And Jesus passed from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. Now, let's make sure we're clear on this. A tax collector in Israel, a tax collector anywhere in the conquered Roman Empire, was a traitor to his people and a traitor to his race. A traitor to his race, a traitor to his nation, and more than likely a crook. Because for a person to be a tax collector in Israel, what they had to do was... Let's not forget, Rome had come in and militarily conquered... Israel, and it didn't really bother them to kill Jews. They would take them, as a matter of fact, crucifixion was not an uncommon thing, it was a common thing. And so it wasn't a big deal for them to say, oh, well, we'll just go kill everybody in here to make a point because we want to keep order and suppress them. So for a Jew to stand up and go, hey, Romans, I'll come on your side, I'll work for you, I'll forcibly collect money from from my Jewish people and bring it back to you so that you can turn it around, build roads and do that to other people, they were considered scum. As a result of that, they usually aligned themselves with the Romans and said, well, if you're going to treat me like that, I'm going to treat you like that. And they often extorted extra taxes from their own people. And if you, if you, if you don't think that's true, go look at Zacchaeus, where he, had to, he actually said, I've stolen from people, I'll repay them, right? So for Jesus to call a tax collector was, in their mind, to call nothing more than vermin. What we find here is that, is that he says, follow me, and immediately Matthew got up and followed Jesus. Now, what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house. This was Matthew's house. Now he goes to his house. That behold, not just Matthew, but all of Matthew's friends, many tax collectors and sinners came down and sat down with him and the disciples. Now, the real problem for this, and particularly in, particular in, in, in Oriental, meaning uh, Eastern culture, is that the idea of sharing a meal with somebody meant that you were creating a covenant with that person that you were agreeing with their lifestyle, agreeing with them as a person, and you're creating a special relationship with them. So to sit down and have a meal with these tax collectors and sinners meant that you were creating a covenant relationship with them. So the Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law, who knew the Bible inside and out, came to him to his disciples and says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know, what, doesn't he know who they are, and doesn't he know what eating with them does? Now when Jesus heard this, he didn't blast them. He didn't do anything. Listen to what he says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I'm reminded when I read this of Romans 3.23 that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So Jesus saying, listen, I didn't come for, I didn't come for those who are well, just those who are sick. Do you get what I'm saying, Pharisees? Right? We're all, he's, they should have said, well, that includes us. And if there's any question about that, listen to what he says. He says, he says I, go learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire not adherence to the law, but mercy that can only come from a changed heart. He actually told them to reference the Old Testament and understand that their entire system of thinking that they could be right with God by what they did rather than who they were was completely wrong and in and of itself meant that they should be sitting at the table next to the tax collectors and sinners because at their core they were no better. They were sick. But he goes, oh, I haven't come to call the sick, I haven't come to call the well, just the sick, you know, just the sick. And then they didn't get it. So later in Luke chapter ten, it says, "Behold!" And this is—any ever wonder where the uh, why the story of the Good Samaritan is even in the Bible? The Good Samaritan—the story of the Good Samaritan—is in the Bible because because people were questioning Jesus, and, and Jesus was being sarcastic again. He says, "Behold, a certain lawyer. This would be a person who studies the law. You had the, the the lawyers, the scribes, and the Pharisees. So he would have been like a scribe." So a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, and not tested like in a bad way, but really inquired of him. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, being Jesus, never answers him directly. He says, um, well, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? What do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? So he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, we've taken that, And there are entire conferences on that scripture right there. Loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. There's songs about how to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. There's Bible studies broken down into five weeks. This is loving God with all your heart. This is loving God with all your soul. This is loving God. And we forget that the reason why he said that to the lawyer was because he was hoping that the lawyer would say something like, let's see, love God with all my heart, love God with all my soul, love God with all my mind, love God with all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself. Like, I haven't been able to do that since breakfast. And then he would say to Jesus, if that's what it takes to inherit eternal life, I'm pretty much toast. And then Jesus could have said, well, that's why I'm here, because you need a savior. Let's sit down and talk about your need for a savior, right? But instead, what the lawyer did was he said, he sought to, and listen to what he did, he sought to narrow the scope of what it meant to inherit eternal life, to something that he could control. You notice that he didn't say, and what do you mean loving God with all my heart? He didn't ask him to define one of the internal characteristics that Jesus talked about. You know why? Because you can fake an internal characteristic. What do you mean? I don't love God with all my heart. Of course I love God with my heart. Who are you to judge me? I've got a tattoo right here It says only God can judge me. Who are you to, to, to judge me? Right? I can do that, but I can't fake my actions. And so he, what he did was he said, I need, to, I need to narrow the scope of what other people see about me, so I will try to narrow the scope of, my, of who my neighbor is to something that I can control and I can possess. Therefore, I can say that I gained myself eternal life. Lots of eyes in there, isn't there? And this is where we got the story of the Good Samaritan... ...because Jesus just blows his mind. And the modern day story of the Good Samaritan... ...would go something like this. There's a guy and he's going down the street... ...and he, and he, and he, and he gets mugged... And he's, ...and he's laying on the street half dead... ...and a televangelist pulls up in his RV. And he rolls down the window... ...and he looks out and he goes... Phew, ...wow, that guy looks pretty bad... ...but you know what, I'm late for a book signing. Uh, confess that you're healed... ...and away he goes, right... And then, and then a Christian rock star comes by and he goes, he goes, wow, you know, he looks really bad. But, you know, if I reach down and get him, I might, I might hurt my fingers and won't be able to play my guitar at my gig tonight. So hope he goes well and go on. And then a guy who's a member of ISIS comes. Because that was the equivalent of, of him saying a Samaritan. In their minds, to call him a Samaritan would be the same thing as saying, you know, this radical Islamist comes by and goes, he's really hurt. Reaches down, picks him up and takes him off to the medical center. That would be the rough, And that's why he was trying to really blow his mind with that story. To say, listen, you don't even understand that everyone's your neighbor. Even the people that hate you the most, and you hate them the most. And if you don't love them like yourself, you can't qualify this. Don't you get your need for a savior? That's where it comes from. Matthew 19, this will be the last one we look at. Matthew 19, verse 16, he says, Behold, someone came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Notice what he said. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He calls him good teacher. And Jesus stops and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except that, uh, no one is good but one, and that is God. Notice he doesn't correct him. He says, are you calling me God? He's really asking him that. And then he says, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. And the guy goes, which ones? <laughs> Hey, if you want to have a good relationship with your dad, <laughs> you want to have a good relationship with your dad, do your chores, don't do drugs, don't disrespect your mom and um uh, and 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 don't and don't uh lie and you go, okay, so is like two out of four good? like can I get good grade, can I get good grades and not disrespect my mom but I do drugs and I'm a liar you're like, uh, no, it doesn't work like that, right So he goes, which ones like Jesus should have gone, are you a moron? But he doesn't do that, right? It's a good thing I'm not Jesus, right? It would have been all sarcasm all the time, right? And he goes, which ones? And Jesus was like, let me me summarize the commandments for you here. He goes, you know, you know the ones, the big ones. You know, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. See, what Jesus was trying to do was to remind him of the Mosaic law because the law is a schoolmaster that brings us to to our need for Christ. And listen to what the guy says. He goes, the young man said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus should have said, perspective possibly? (laughs) Humility? A lack of narcissism? You really think that you've kept all of these things perfectly from your youth? Oh, you little bubble boy. Right? He should have said that, right? He should have said that. Who says to Jesus, who he probably just saw heal people, and he walks up and calls him a good teacher, doesn't question his God, and goes, hey, you know everything, it's your God, and uh, by the way, I've kept all of the commandments from my youth. Talk about putting on a show. Jesus said to him, well, listen, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Do you think... So what Jesus was actually saying is that if you sell what you have and give it to the poor, that gets you eternal life? No. No, it doesn't. Because we know that good deeds do not qualify us for God. Because the good deed that I do today does not cover up the bad deed that I did yesterday. And that's why salvation is by grace and through faith alone. What Jesus was trying to get to was trying to get to the point of his heart because you see this guy had grown up in a culture that said if you're wealthy and you're prosperous it must and you're successful it must mean that God loves you. We don't hear that preached today at all, do we? So it says, if you're wealthy and you're successful, that it must mean that God loves you. Therefore, if you're wealthy and successful, you must be okay. And he was taught that. He was a young man. He was taught that from the time he was young. And he grew up in wealth, so he thought he was okay. And Jesus was trying to tell him, the problem is, is not you. The problem is, your focus is on your possessions rather than on me. And he says, so get rid of your possessions and listen to what happened. He, the young man should have said, that's a real problem for me and then Jesus could have sat down with him and said yeah you know what it really is a problem for you the problem isn't your possessions the problem is that you love your possessions more than you love me and so if I come to you like, like a passionate groom and, and, and you're the bride and we kiss it'll feel like you love someone else because in actuality you love your possessions and your comfortable life more than you love God so let's deal with that but instead, the young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. See, Jesus oftentimes, when he, when he was challenging people, he was doing it for the purpose not of denigrating them, not of telling them that he was mad with them, but of helping them to open up their eyes because they were blind. The reality is, is that sometimes we sit here and we see this thing about being mended and we think that, that, that mended is, is, for, is for people who are drug addicts or mended is for people who are, have who are, done something really bad like they're, they're murderers. And so we're like, okay, so great. I'm not, uh, what, Charles Manson or Amy Winehouse and so that means I'm okay. The reality is, is, that, is that we were created in the image of God and we were meant to live in a relationship with Him. And to one extent or another all of us are broken. All of us need mended. and The sooner that we recognize that and will admit it, the faster the mending process can take place. Every single one of us, no matter what the veneer of respectability or acceptability that we have that other people see, the car you drive or the house you live in or the place where your kids went to school or the accomplishments that you've made or the, the amount of scripture that you've memorized, all of us, to one extent or another, are broken. And every single one of us needs mended. Let me help with this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And that is a great passage of Scripture. Unfortunately, it's not even the entire sentence, but it is a great passage of Scripture to understand that there is no condemnation. To who? To those who are in Christ. There's a big difference, by the way, between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is the Holy Spirit trying to... I, I think about him, I think about the Holy Spirit as walking around with a giant... Pair of size 13 Doc Martens, and he just steps on my chest and is like, That's what that feeling is. And like, Hey, stupid, are you gonna knock it off? That's the conviction, right? But condemnation there is no condemnation of, of sentencing us to the consequences of our sin because Christ has freed us from the consequences of our sin. But it says here, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me put a different spin on this. To the extent that I walk according to the Spirit, I do not sense condemnation. But to the extent that I continue to walk according to the flesh, I feel condemnation. Because it says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so to the extent that I'm still and sometimes even unknowingly so, and sometimes just out of decades of habit, continuing to walk after the flesh and not after the spirit, I am still broken. And God's not through with me yet. It says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus makes me free. But to the extent that I walk after the flesh and not after the spirit, I am still dangerously close to the law of sin and death and that needs fixed here's the reason why in Revelation 3 he says he says, you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing but you don't know that you're a wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked Jesus then doesn't leave them alone and go and you should feel ashamed of yourself that's not true That that is not the way that God God views you or me or anyone. He then says, I counsel you to come to me. Now, what did the Laodiceans, what were they famous for? They were famous for their gold because of their money. They were famous for their garments because of their manufacturing. And they were famous for their medicine, specifically the, the Laodicean Isav. And listen to what he says. He says, you think that you have these things and they make you okay. And the very things you have... Aren't really real. So why don't you come to me and the things you think are important? Let me show you what it really means. He says, I counsel for you to come to me for gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. They could have said, I'm not what? I'm not rich. It's not rich in the things that matter. So come to me and buy gold. Let me tell you what that um, what that gold is. That gold is 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 is, is the the inheritance of Christ. Let me peel this back to what this means. That gold is the inheritance of Christ. And as the inheritance of Christ, the only way to access the inheritance of Christ is through salvation that was bought through Christ. And the only way to experience the salvation that comes through Christ is not from our own good works, but through His blood. And the reason He says, you come to Me to buy gold refined in the fire... The fire is the fire of his death on the cross that, where his blood was poured out. And I want you to think about what this would mean. It's one thing to think about salvation as a legal transaction. I give my life to you. You give me this. I get a deed. I get a ticket to heaven. It's all really good. It's another thing entirely to walk up to a person that, said, that, that, that could stand there and said, your sins are the reason that I died. And if you want to experience this, you have to come to me, and in coming to me, you have to come through a fountain of my own blood. You have to wash yourself and cover yourself head to toe in my blood that was was poured out on the ground because of your transactions. That is a very humbling thing to think about. The problem is, is that gold is only found in his presence. And the only way into his presence is humility. So the first step, that's the reason why he talks about it, is the first step is to admit to ourselves and to God, and then most importantly even to other people, that we are broken and that we do need mended. James chapter 4 says this about about, um, the humility that is required for salvation. He says, therefore submit to God, fall in line. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Deal with your sins. This is not meant to sound condemning. Remember, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This is meant to, to, to remind us of who we are apart from Christ. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and weep and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom that means take all the things that you would think are important and take that away and pick up the fact of what who we really are and he says humble yourselves feeling very insignificant make yourselves insignificant not to other people or in reality but in the sight of god and then we are in a position for him to lift us up the joy of salvation ...is the fact that when we know, when I know who I really was... ...and I know who left to my own devices, who I really could be... ...but I see what God has done in my life... ...and I can point to that and go, you see all these good things that, that are in my life? None of them came from me. But all of them came from, through Jesus Christ. That in and of itself draws me near. And now I sit at the right hand of God and I have the inheritance of Christ which is true riches. Let me tell you something. No house, no car, no anything can give me security. I chase after money for security, and nothing can give me security like the security that I have when I am in Christ. He says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments, which were very hard to come by. White garments... That you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Those garments represent the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61, verse 10, says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, or as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, he has clothed me With a robe of righteousness. Now righteousness is the idea, is is the sense that I could be in God's presence without the fear of being ashamed. I could come into God's presence and not have him go, I know who you are, I know what you did, get out. Because I feel like that on my own. Because I know myself, and I know who I could be, and I know what I am without Christ. But when he covers me with his rope of righteousness, then when he sees me, he sees Jesus. That's what that is, because Jesus is our righteousness. And so what happens is, and a way to think think about this is is to think about this like the prodigal son. The, The prodigal son, he goes off, and he wastes his life. And do you think that when he was walking back that he looked cool? When he was walking back to his dad, that he had his little snapback on, and he, and he had his Jordans, and he was walking back? No way. There was a famine. So he would have been emaciated. He would probably show the, the, the scars or maybe even the open wounds of having been physically assaulted for being a Jew. He, would have, he, would have had, he, was, he was living with pigs. He would have had dried pig dung. His clothes would have been tattered. He was disheveled. He was a broken human being, and the only reason he was going back to God was because there was nothing else. And when, when, when the father sees him, and he sees him, he comes running out to him, and what does he do? He embraces him and brings him to himself and says, none of this matters. And the very first thing he does is he calls over and he says, bring a robe and cover him. One, signifying him as my son, and two, covering over the shame so that no one else can see it. We'll deal with this on the way back. I'll get you new clothes. We'll get you some food. We'll get you cleaned up. You'll be all right. But in the meantime, when other people see you, they see my son. That's the way that God sees you. And the life of a Christian is that we come to God... And we say, hey, I don't have anything to offer. And he goes, yourself is cool. I've done it all. He brings you to himself, and and he covers you with his righteousness so that the Father walks next to you. You're covered in Christ. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit can clean up your life. That's what the life of a Christian is supposed to be about. And instead, what we do is we we adorn ourselves with good works or this or that or an air of respectability and not actually humility to allow ourselves to be cleaned and covered over. But when you have that, I will tell you something, that the prayers of a righteous person sound different because we're not afraid to walk into God's presence and remind him of his promises. It doesn't feel too hard for us because there's a genuine relationship there. There is a genuine relationship there. Look, how many of you guys who have kids have had your kids go on in and say, hey, Dad, you promised we would go to Rita's today. (laughs) Do you go, impertinent child, reminding me of my promises? I go, well, yeah, Rita's sounds pretty cool. Let's go. Right? I probably suggested Rita's. Let's make this a little bit diagnostic to help ourselves understand this. Colossians chapter 3. Here's the New Testament version of putting on the robe of righteousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. This is what a person without the robe of righteousness looks like. This is what a person who has covered themselves in their own righteousness and not in God's righteousness looks like. Fornication. Uncleanness. Passion. Passion is not what we might think of the word as passion. Passion literally means there, a party spirit. And by a party spirit, I don't, I don't mean like, party spirit, woohoo, I don't mean that. A party spirit, what a party spirit is, is red state, blue state, conservative, Republican, Yankees, Red Sox, right? A party spirit is this, is when I take another human being and denigrate them because they disagree with my point of view. And I pull myself into one side and I see you on the other side and simply because we disagree I view you as less valuable and stupid and dumb and and less uh, valuable as a human being. That's what a party spirit is. We don't have any of those problems today. (laughs) Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You see what he's saying to us? He's saying, let's not forget who we were. Let's not forget who, apart from Christ, we would be. Best word in the entire Bible, but. All this thing, stuff is true, but now you yourselves... Put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See, if any of these things are the marks of our life, it is a mark that we are poor and naked and wretched and blind and not covered in righteousness. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and his deeds and have put on... The new man, that's the robe of righteousness, who is renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. He is renewed and you become in the image of God in whom you were created. You become more and more like God. Listen, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. He doesn't see color. He doesn't see socioeconomic status. He doesn't see level of intelligence. He doesn't see male or female. He doesn't see any of that. He sees people. Therefore, as the elect of God, this is what it should look like. And our question for ourselves is to ask ourselves, are we marked by this? As holy and elect of God, Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Kindness, which is the ability to take a stranger and treat him like a family. That's why it's called kindness. It comes from the word kin, which means to take a person and treat them like family. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you you must also do. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. Those things are the mark of a person who is righteous. And those things are the mark of a person who has the robe of righteousness on them and who has come to Christ and said, I would like to exchange my garments for yours. Then he says here, he says, I counsel you that you, that you would buy me, uh, to, to buy from me gold and refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see. What, well, we can't see? Well, not really. Not really for what's actually real. Listen, that eye salve is actually the Holy Spirit anoint your eyes with the Holy Spirit that that he will be your guide and be able to help you see what is actually real. There are two places that we can find this in the New Testament. I want to just summarize one of them and talk about the other in detail. The first is Paul's conversion. When Paul was knocked off his high horse right, and he was converted, what happened? He was blinded. No one else around him was blinded, but he was blinded. About three, four days later, about three days later, uh, he, he's, he's in um, uh, Damascus, and, uh, and Ananias comes and prays for him, and it says there was like scales that fell off of his eyes. Now, I don't know if he had actual scales on his eyes, if there's some weird covering. Pfft, I don't know, I haven't even looked into it, but this is what I do know, that when his eyes were open and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he saw things for how they really were. Because the holy spirit was his guide all those churches on that map most of the new testament that paul wrote that the holy spirit used paul to write and 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 the gospel to the gentiles came through that man that could see things for how they really are let me tell you what i mean by see things for how they really are let me first preface it with this if i am walking in the mall and you see one of those stores that's closed, and they've got the little the, the the wall up there, and they've you know they got you know coming soon, or they got a little painting of you know flowers or whatever, right? We all know that that's not what's there. We all know that behind that wall they're working on a new store, right? So let me just get this straight: they built a wall to take it down, right? The wall itself is temporary, and what's really important is what's behind the wall. So therefore, let me help me understand: if there is something that is temporary and there is something that is permanent, and I said, which one is more real? The permanent thing is more real, and the temporary thing is less real. Doesn't the Bible say that the things of the Spirit remain forever, but the things of this world are passing away? Doesn't it say that our life is like a vapor? Doesn't it say that this entire planet is like is, is like a, a, a bundle of grass that's thrown in the fire and burns up? Doesn't it say that? So what is more real? The things that the very thing I'm standing on and the body that I'm touching, or what's actually real spiritually. Okay, here's the problem. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. This is down underneath that, um, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, it says, "Likewise, the spirit helps in our weakness." <gasps> we have a weakness among many. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Now, now I told you I'm a total geek, and, and, and I looked, literally looked up all the Greek words in that, and so, sorry. I won't give you all of them. I'll tell you this, that the word ought comes from a word for sight. So I'll give you the Stablark's unauthorized version of that scripture. What it's saying there is that there is a spiritual reality... That if you're going to pray God's will, you need to know what's actually happening behind the scenes. In other words, in every situation, there's the thing that you see, and there's the reality behind the thing. There's, 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 there's spiritual forces at work, there's God's plan at work, there's something happening behind the scene. You might see the loss of a job. God sees something else going on, Right? You might see somebody dying in what you think is an untimely manner. There's a whole bunch of uh, stuff happening behind the scenes. And if you and I are going to pray God's will... ...because we know that if we pray anything according to His will... ...that He hears us and that we have the confidence that we have what we've prayed. But how do we know that we're praying God's will... Unless we're praying about what's behind the scenes in reality. And this scripture says, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. What he's saying there is that when it comes to the reality of the spiritual world, we're completely blind. That's what he says. He says, here's your weakness. The spirit helps us in our weakness. And our weakness is that when it comes to what's really happening behind the scenes, we're completely blind. Great. How am I supposed to pray about the things that are real when I can't even see them and I don't even understand or perceive them. He says, but the Spirit, there's that great word again, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us which, with groanings which cannot be uttered. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You know what he's saying here? Is he saying if we will admit that we don't even know how to pray about what God's will is in that situation because we're completely blind. And if we'll come to God in that and go, God, I want your will to, to happen here, and I want to I be part of what you're doing in, in this situation, but I'll be honest with you, I don't even know. I don't even pretend to begin to know what your thoughts are. You might have a plan here that is totally beyond me and that in my own, what I want and what you want are diametrically opposed because what you want takes the whole big picture. I have no idea. You know what he says? He says, when you pray... The Holy Spirit will come and kneel down next to you, and he'll put his arm on you, and he'll go, how about we pray this? If that's ever happened to you before, where it just kind of drops down, for me it's like this explosion of of stupidity, (laughs) he goes, hey, stupid, how about this, right, And, and I'm just like, whoa, I never even thought about that, that's the Holy Spirit saying, let's go, this is what, how about this? He says in our weaknesses, he will help us. See, remember, being weak doesn't mean you are despicable. Being weak means you are in a position to be helped by God. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, had a thorn in his side... We don't really know what it is. Some people speculate that it was like this, uh, this injury that he had to, or an infection that he had in his eye. Some people speculate that it was some other thing that he had. Who knows? It doesn't really say. But he had actually gone to God and he said, God, please take this away. And God kept telling him, listen, I got a bigger plan for you than that. I got a different plan. I'm going to leave that infirmity in your life. I'm going to leave that in your life. I'm going to and, he, and Paul kept coming back to him. He goes, God, I really want this. He says, Many three times he said, "I went," and then finally God says, listen. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is what Paul says, most gladly, if I'm going to boast, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. And to the extent that I will admit to God and bring my weaknesses to him. By the way, do you think he doesn't know what they are already? He kind of, you know, that whole omnipotent thing, omnipresent, omniscient thing. He kind of knows already. But if I will bring them to him and not try to cover them up with a veneer of respectability, but bring them to him, he says that the power of Christ, the same power that raised people from the dead, the same power that multiplied fish and loaves, the same power that, from which he himself then stood up from the grave and walked out proving that, that he had conquered sin and death itself, that same power will rest on our lives. And when that power rests on our lives, I am telling you, Thousands of people will come to see that because that in and of itself is reality. And that in and of itself would draw people because everybody in their heart of hearts knows that at some level they are broken. And when people see a person who's been mended and genuinely mended, boy, that'll get the world's attention. So let's pray. And, and here's my challenge My challenge is to not be like the Laodicean church, and my challenge is to not have the veneer of respectability, whatever that looks like in your own life, be more important than the passionate love that God has for us. That would be my challenge. So let's pray. God, this is a, a fairly difficult thing. Not because it's difficult for you, but because it's difficult for us. Much easier for a kid to admit that he's weak than it is for an adult to admit that we're weak and that we are in need of you. Nevertheless, Lord, I, I want to pray and, and ask that you would release people And give them the ability to admit that and to bring that weakness to you, not so that you could condemn them, but so that your power would rest on them and that you would be sufficient and that your strength would be made perfect in the midst of their weakness. So I'm going to pray right now, and this is what I'm going to ask. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and come down here, but I just want to know who I'm praying for. And so if that's you and and somehow you've come here this morning and and you recognize that, that you've been... Kind of hiding behind a veil of respectability that you've made of your own of your own doing, and that in reality you've been hiding weakness from God, that you've been loving something else more than you've loving God. Let me be very specific: that you've been telling yourself and other people the lie that you're okay when in reality you're not, and you recognize that right now you need to do business with God. I j- I just want you to look at me or raise your hand. Just let me know who I'm praying for. Just somehow, okay, all right, okay. Very good. All right. Lord, our country is in so much need right now for people who have a firm grasp on your grace and who are firmly grasped by your love. Our planet, our families, and ourselves, we need you. And so just as we are, we present our weakness to you. Not that you didn't already know about it, but we present our weakness to you so that you can do something about it. Not that you would fix us to make us feel better about ourselves, but you would fix us to make us feel better about you. I ask, Lord God, right now in the quietness of our heart that as we bring this to you and we name it in our mind and and maybe even under our breath to you, that you would let us know that you've got it. And fill us with your power, Lord. Cover us in your righteousness. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might really see. And, and give us, grant us the humility to stay in your presence so that we could have true riches in our life. And then when that happens, first and foremost, that we would be more like you. And then, Lord, that others would see that and be drawn to that same wonderful gift that is offered through your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Hey, listen. If you're here this morning, and I want to be serious about this. If you're here this morning, and um, uh, and you just need someone to pray with, uh, myself and some other people will be here, and and we will pray with you, and 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 I uh, would like to do that. Specifically, though, if you're here this morning and somehow you walked in and you're like, "Holy cow!" I don't even. Know the Jesus that you're talking about, and, and I really need to get my life right with Him, and I am far away from Him. I need to get my life right with Him. We'd like to talk with you about the issue of your own salvation. You should not walk out this door without being sure that you are right with God, and, and that, that is such an easy thing to do, um, and so, so talk with us, okay? Uh, the, the rest of you guys, don't forget, we got um, a gift for you in the back if you're, if you're a visitor, and um, the rest of you guys... Uh, Oh, yeah, well, there's a challenge. There's always a challenge, and it's always memorize the scripture. So there's a challenge here. Yeah, memorize the scripture. Uh, Yeah, what was it? I put it in there. Yeah, James 4.10, yeah. Good scripture to memorize. Okay, all right. God bless you guys, and uh, we'll see you.
1: No! So- Gotcha.
2: Gracias.
3: Good morning everyone welcome to faith living church we're so glad you guys came out here to join us and before we get started with the service we're just going to spend some time praising our god so we invite you to stand with us and we're just going to give praise and glory to our god who is so good who is almighty and so powerful but he loves us and so we're just going to give some praise back to him so we invite you to join us your time to reach us the great love that gave everything up so that it could have us you made this whole earth you're so powerful you made the universe and the heavens and it all screams your glory they declare how great our God is yet you gave it all up to save us because you loved us Your whole focus and purpose was to love us and let us know you and we thank you for that that you sought us while we were still sinners you sought us while we didn't know you so now let my soul declare your goodness let my soul scream how great your love is see us know that we are the people of a loving God we are a people of a living God let me declare to all that you love us that you are great, that you are good we come here to praise you God to connect with you and have the relationship that you sought after so much that you desperately want with us We come here to worship you and serve you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You all may be seated.
4: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Faith Living Church. We're excited that you decided to be a part of our community this weekend. And we want to take a second and welcome any first-time guests that we might have with us in the house. Uh, We're excited that you're here, and we have a gift for you, which is at our Connection Center, which is the information desk there in the back of the sanctuary. So be sure to stop back there after service. Somebody would love to meet you and give you that gift. And as always, we have some complimentary coffee and tea there in the back, so please help yourself. And if you have young ones with you here today, we also have age-relevant classes going on right now. Uh, ages six through 12 means Super Church, which is in the upstairs of our children's wing. And the downstairs is a four and fives classroom and a nursery available. Also, on your chair as you were sitting down, you found a couple pieces of paper just waiting for you. Uh, one of those is an information form that we call our Connections Card. We would love to connect with you if that's something that you'd be willing to take a few seconds to fill out. Uh, after the service, please, uh, you could drop the completed form into a tithe box or drop it off at the Connection Center. We appreciate you taking the time to do that.
5: Hi, uh, I'm Heather, and I've been coming to MOPS for a year. And uh, my daughter, Madison, just turned three, so she's been part of the MOPS program from the beginning. I'm Dawn Thomas. I'm one of the um, child care workers for MOPS, and I run the toddler room, and I had the pleasure of working with Maddie. Parenting is challenging enough, but when you have a child with some special needs, you really need people around you who um, can be a safe harbor. You know an adult has had an impact when when at bedtime prayers, your child asks to pray for the person who cared for her that day. And on more than one occasion, Madison has asked to pray for Miss Dawn. And um, it really moved my heart because it said to me that um, our program really has people involved that care about our kids. They're, they're not just ministering to the moms, but we're ministering to the entire family and, and that's really been a huge, huge support for us and, and we really appreciate it. And Maddie comes home so happy and she asks for you all the time. I've seen Maddie change quite a lot over the last few months. Um, just holding hands with the other children, doing Ring Around the Rosie and I've seen her grow. You know,
3: I think MOPS is just a great ministry for anyone to help out with. It's just fun to hang out with the kids. It's great. Did you have a fun time at MOPS this year? Oh, that's a big yes. He says yes. You have a good time? What do we usually do at MOPS? Big fact. Yeah, well, usually we go outside, we make crafts, everything, right? Big snack! Yes. I yep. snack, all that cool stuff. And always oh, just, we, we have a great time. The kids love it. They have fun doing it.
5: It's great. The MOPS group at Faith Living Church is setting up for its second year. This ministry for moms is growing and in need of childcare teachers. We provide the lessons and materials. You provide the hugs, smiles, and enthusiasm. We are looking for people from teens to grandparents who are available two Tuesday mornings a month. MOPS is the only time some of these children are in church, so you have a huge opportunity to teach them about the Lord and show God's love. If you are interested in serving, please leave your contact information at the Connections desk. And thank you.
4: Faith Living Church will be hosting a Women's Night event entitled Living Free, September 16th and 17th. This event is for all women ages 18 and up. A $10 registration fee covers study guide, breakfast, lunch, and child care for all children up to 12 years old. Please visit the Connection Center or register online at faithlivingchurch.com.
0: Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Good. That was a trick question. No, it really was. It was a trick question. I'm Pastor Joe, and, uh, and in case you don't know me, and uh, Pastor Ron's been away on vacation a couple of weeks. Mike Kane has done a great job. We're going to finish up talking about Mended. I do want to put a, a plug in. I forgot to do it at the 9 o'clock service. I can't believe it. Uh, if you are in middle school or high school, or you know someone who's in middle school and high school, did you guys know we had a youth ministry here? See, that's what I'm talking about. So, um, Saturday nights after the service, so parents, you can come to the service, leave your kids here, go off to Starbucks or down to Zingarellas or something like that, and uh, get an Italian ice, let your kids here, and uh, we, we have free food, so every teenager should be there. We have free food every week, we've got, uh, that whole blue house is ours, and, and the, the youth are running worship, and it's really cool, and it goes from 7.30 to 9 on Saturdays, and uh, that's all I have to say, so you should probably check it out. All right. Um, last couple of weeks, last several weeks, we've been talking about this, Pastor Ron's way asked me to finish this up on the issue of Mended. The reason why I said it was a trick question when I said, how's everybody doing, and you said okay, is because that is the standard American answer, is it not? No matter what's happening, how are things, fine, unless you really know the person, right? And, and I think that there is, and this is, this is I'll just say this. As I 've been sitting here listening and, and, and taking notes and stuff like that on this subject of mended, I heard, uh, there was a, a mental picture that I had in my mind, and it was this of many people saying, "Boy, this is a really good teaching for all of those broken-hearted people. This is a really good teaching for all those people who've been knocked around with life and, and things are gone bad and, um, Boy, for those people, it's really good. But I'm okay. And what I want to talk about today is the danger of being okay. There was a book when I was a kid, I'm Okay, You're Okay, remember that? Um, And it was really the stupidest book ever. (laughs) Next to whatever Dr. Spock's book on child raising. Um, But it was really a, a bad book. It really should be, I'm not okay, and neither are you, and that's a good thing. Because that gives space for God. So, uh, what I'd like to talk about, um, and, and I will reveal my total and utter geekdom as we do this. Both, um, both in the fact that I like to look up uh, Greek things and I also like to study maps. So, um, so the first thing I want to do is put up a map. We're going to talk about a town called Laodicea. And so, if we could put up that very first one that's a, that's a map up there. Now, uh, it's not the... Um, we got that? Just let me know when we got it up there. It's not the best... Map in the world because I couldn't zoom in on Laodicea because it, in the West we wouldn't recognize when we saw Turkey that it was Turkey. So I had to pull a map up that showed the whole Mediterranean. And as soon as you see that boot over there and you go, oh, that's Italy, now we know where we're at, right? Okay, so you've got Italy there, so that next to it would be Greece. And then you've got the Mediterranean Sea, you kind of got Jerusalem and down here, northern Africa along the bottom. And it hooks up over there, that's Turkey. Now, Turkey is strategically important, has always been strategically important. As a matter of fact, it was the first and only Middle Eastern country to be part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and the reason why we wanted, why why the West wanted Turkey to be part of NATO is because north of that is the Black Sea, and that became a warm water port access for the Russians and therefore the Soviets, and we didn't want that, so we controlled Turkey. There's this little thing called the Strait of Hormuz, and it's behind the... ...behind the earliest churches thing there is right in there. And that controls access to the Black Sea. And so it's always been strategically important. But what I want you to see here... ...and I want you to think about this in, in ancient times... ...is that if you have Italy over there and Greece over there... ...what do you have? You have the, Greece, the, 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 the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then you have the Roman Empire. And, and you have all of what is Asia Minor over here. Kind of around the drums. Asia Minor. And if you were going to trade... And get anything from Asia Minor, spices, silk, cloth, anything coming from over here and getting over to Greece or Rome would go through Turkey. So that was why Turkey was strategically important. Now, there's a couple of things you might not be able to pick up on here, but but right as the Mediterranean Sea kind of, you got Jerusalem down here, as the Mediterranean Sea goes up and bangs the left, right there, that's Tarsus. And if, any, if anybody remembers reading the book of Acts, right? Paul gets converted to Christianity, and then he's in Damascus for a little while. Then he's out in the wilderness in, in, in Asia for about three years. And then finally a guy named Barnabas brings him in to the disciples and says, Hey, listen, I know he was trying to kill you, but he's really cool now. And they're like, Okay, that's great. Why don't you go make tents? And so he went up to Tarsus for several years until he was called over. That place in the middle there that kind of looks like it's the Finger Lakes right there, the town called Antioch. And he went to Antioch, and there was a big revival in Antioch. That became the center of Christianity. Two centers of Christianity: Jerusalem, primarily to the Jews, and Antioch, primarily the outreach to the Gentiles. Turkey then became the center of Christianity, New Testament Christianity. All of those, um, all of those, uh, those red dots that are actually red dots with crosses in them, but it's a little non-HD, um, all of those things are, are, are churches that were founded in the main churches in, uh, in Turkey. And what you see in there is this Colossae, which is the book of Colossians, there's Ephesus, which is the book of Ephesians, there's Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, all of those, Philadelphia, all of those things were actually places in Turkey, big difference between today right, and back then, but that was actually the center of Christianity. So let's talk about one of those places, which is Laodicea. If you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea and kind of going up, in, inland is Laodicea, right right there. So you guys see that? that? That one dot, that's Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a city that was founded under Alexander the Great. As a matter of fact, it was named after the wife of one of his generals. And, and the reason why it's important, remember I said that all trade went through there. The geography of that area of Turkey, so you'd come up, as a trade route, and you'd have these camel caravans coming up and trying to bring stuff into, into Greece. And as you came up, it was all mountainous. And Laodicea was laid out in, in some ways like Southington, Connecticut is, where it's a valley. And you know, when Southington has the valley, and you've kind of got the ridgeline up over on the one side where Wolkett is, and then you've got the other ridgeline where like Meriden and Berlin go, right, over there. And so it, was, it had two large ridgelines or mountain areas, mountainous areas, and then there was a big fertile valley with a river running through it, the, the Lycus River that ran through it. Now, if you were a trader and you had a caravan of camels bringing silk or spices or something like that, and you were trying to get to Greece, and you were coming through this area here, would you go up over the mountains where Wolk is? Or would you go up over, you know, by Castle Craig, up over that way? Or would you go right down Route 10 through Southington? Right. It makes total sense, right? And so Laodicea, because it's more mountainous than that, Laodicea having a river going through it and being in a valley, that area became a commercial hub because it was right along the major trade route between Asia Minor and the main empires of the world, the Greek and Roman empires at the time. And that was the major trading port. In the same way that you might ask yourself, like, well, Baltimore. How has Baltimore actually ever became really a city? Well, if you ever see it from the sky, right, it's got this great natural port to it, and so it became a trading port, and that's the reason why it was like this. Those red dots there, that trading route like there, we tend to think of of towns in the Bible as like backwater third-world towns. The reality is that that was the rough equivalent... Today, of the 95 corridor here in the United States, from Boston to D.C., now think about that, from Boston to D.C., along Route 95, what do you got? You got Boston, you've got us, you've got New York City, northern New Jersey, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., right? One of the wealthiest parts of the wealthiest country in the history of the world, right there, right? That's what that was like. So let's talk about Laodicea specifically. I said it was located along the Lycus River, and the, t- the two hillsides, the two hillsides, there were cliffs, really. On the top of one cliff was a place called Colossae, which is where we get the book of Colossians. Now, Colossae was unique in that it had natural springs all the way up in the mountains. This is pretty cool, kind of like Asheville, North Carolina, something like that. It had these natural springs that, that grew up over there. And on the other side was a place called Heropolis. Now, I want to show you a picture of Heropolis, so let's look at this next picture up here. This is a picture of the cliffs of, of the cliffs of Heropolis. Now your first thought might be, wow, I thought that was Turkey and that's snow. But it's not. Anybody know what it is? Some people would say salt. What it actually is, is the area is geologically active, meaning there was uh, the reason why it's not a, a cool place to have trade routes anymore is because there were earthquakes that tended to destroy the city. And, uh, and so this was a geologically active area, and those were, those were uh, hot springs. So there was magma underneath that mountain. It was a volcanic, an old volcanic mountain, and there were hot springs. If you've ever been to places like Yellowstone, even some places in Arkansas, some stuff like that down in Mexico, they have these hot springs. What the hot springs did was it bubbled up this hot water. Those are actually hot pools. Those are people, those little dots are people that are going to bathe in the hot mineral springs because it's kind of cool and, I guess, refreshing and good for your skin. And what it did was those are made out of calcium and lime and, and a lot of minerals. Now, the interesting thing, if you were in Laodicea, what did you have? You're in this valley. You've got this, this growing business and, and, uh, of trade and several things that they did. Number one. They took all of the people that were trading uh, fabric that were coming out of the Middle East, and they said, hey, just sell your fabric to us. And they took that fabric, silk and and, and wool and, and things like that, and even cotton out of Egypt. They took that fabric, and they made clothes out of it and sold the finished product into the Greek Empire and into the Roman Empire. Had a huge business in clothing manufacturing. The other thing that they had was they had all of this trade and commerce. The fact is, is that the city grew so large that it outstripped... I said it was founded along the Lycus River... that it outstripped the Lycus River. Meaning, it'd be like us. We've got the Quinnipiac that runs here. It'd be like saying our need for water outstrips the flow of the, of the, of the, of the Quinnipiac River. Right. So what they did was they went up into the mountains and they built aqueducts, and they piped down cold water out of Colossae, and then they said, we'll go up into Hierapolis, and we'll pipe down hot water down in. We'll have hot and cold running water, and it'll be awesome. Now, a couple of the problems that they had with that, of course, (coughs) was, number one, that was all the calcium and lime that was up there. What do you think happened to their aqueduct? It's all hard water. It's the very thing that happens to us here, right? Our pipes get and our, our countertops kind of get scaling on them. Well, You can even go today and find, find the ruins where they had these giant aqueducts and they're pulled down to just these, these small areas. So they had a hard time getting it through. The other thing is it's a pretty big distance between the, the... And it's warm in Turkey, so it's a pretty big distance between the cold water and Colisei. And because it's warm, what do you think happened to that water? Did it stay cold? It didn't. It would warm up. And what do you think happened to the hot water coming out of, out of Hierapolis? It would cool down, and by the time it got to Laodicea, do you think it was hot, or do you think it was cold? It was lukewarm. And so it really wasn't a great idea, but at least they had some water. The other thing that happened, though, as a result of Hierapolis and, and, and all of these salt springs running out, that's hundreds of feet going down the, the, the side of those, the, the cliff side down into, into there. The, the minerals mixed with the clay down at the bottom and created this highly mineralized clay that they then turned and manufactured into medicine. And they made a Laodicean eye salve because lots of people would have eye infections back then because they didn't have clean water. They would make a Laodicean eye salve and a Laodicean ear salve that they sold throughout the Greek and Roman Empire. And they were very famous for it, and consequently, Laodicea had a great, um, they they founded a a medical school there. So you had a medical school in Athens, and then the next largest medical school in the world was in Laodicea. So the people running around with their chariots that had little bumper stickers that said, Laodicea Medical, right? Your kid went to Smyrna State School, not so good. My kid went to Laodicea Med. You know, good school. And so they had a big medical school there. They had big hospitals there. They had people up in the hot springs. They're making this ISAV. Interesting thing, by the way. The ISAV didn't actually work, um, but it was really good marketing. And uh, so kind of like Chamonix, right, or something like that today, uh, where, you know, whether or not it works, you know, you know, your results may, may vary, but we still sell it, right? And so, and so they thought it worked, so everybody thought it worked. So if you had in Laodicea an eye salve, was really good for your eyes, and, and so people were selling it all, so they had lots of money. In that area, there was poverty. As a matter of fact, this church in Smyrna was considered one of the poorest churches, but the church in Laodicea was one of the richest churches in the area and possibly one of the richest churches in the world because they had their own manufacturing for, for clothing. They had a huge trade. Uh, trade routes where they had lots of you know 7-Elevens and fix your, fix your camel things and stuff like that. They had all kinds of stuff that supported the trade, and then they had they had the medical thing, and then they were selling the they, they were selling the eye salve all over the place. Um, so let's read. Later on, the the Holy Spirit inspires John to uh, while he's on the Isle of Patmos to pray and Jesus appears to him, and Jesus says that, hey, I want you to write a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, those seven churches that you saw, and by the time we get to Revelation 3, he wants them to write a, a letter to the church of Laodicea, and we're going to do, in the next half hour or so, we're going to do a giant parenthetical statement. What I mean by that is we're going to start to talk about the, the letter to, to Laodicea. We're going to take a break and talk about what it means and what we learn from it, and we're going to come back to that letter at the end, so stay with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. He says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Saying, listen, this is God himself speaking. I know your works. I know your works. I know the good things you're doing. He says, but I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were hot or cold see what he's saying he is using he's trying to talk to them in language that they understood because they 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 were this is the city that got cold water from one place hot water from another place and it still didn't work it said i wish that you were cold or hot so then because you were lukewarm and neither cold or hot i will vomit you out of your mouth now let me make sure we're clear on this because a lot of people hear this and they read this and this is what they think they think that jesus is standing there and saying listen laodicean church I wish that you were hot. I wish that you were cold. But you're just lukewarm and you make me want to puke. That's not what he's saying. It's actually significantly worse than that. I was talking with a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, and and, and we were riding bikes and talking about God and stuff like that and talking about this, and he had some insight into this. I want to share it with you. We need to remember that Jesus is not a rule keeper who is just tallying up the number of times that we break the rules that's what where we get the idea that it makes it like you make me sick because you're not keeping the rules what jesus actually is is he says i am the bridegroom and you are the bride he has a passion for us for a, a a close and personal relationship with us and he says the image here and we'll get to it and prove that that's what he's saying. He said, the image that I want to give you is of, is of a groom who has, who has saved himself for marriage and done the right things. And he's got this bride and he's passionate about her and he loves her and it's on their wedding day. And he goes to kiss her and she kisses him back. And as she kisses him back, he recognizes in that kiss, he recognizes that she loves someone else because there's no passion coming from her to him. She's doing it. She's kissing him, but there's no passion there. And she recognizes, I've suspected all along that you love someone else. And now this kiss, in and of itself, proves to me that you love someone else. And it makes me feel like I'm kissing my sister. And it makes me go and spit the kiss out of my mouth. That's what he's saying. See, it's not one of, you've broken the rules and make me sick. It's, you've hurt me deeply because I have great passion and love for you, and you haven't returned it because your love is focused on something aside from me. And what is it? He says, because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. I am okay and don't need mended. I'm rich. I don't need you. I don't need what you offer. I don't need anything because I'm all right just the way I am. I am rich, and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And then he says, and you don't know, Laodiceans, that you're wretched, miserable, poor. Who? Us, poor, blind. Who? Us, the makers of the eye salve that heals the sight of the entire world, and naked. Who? Us, the major manufacturer of all the clothes that everybody wants. Yeah, you're wretched, miserable, poor, and naked, and blind. You know, there are a lot of places, and we're going to start to kind of walk off of this for a second, just leave that there, but we need to understand how uh, the way that Jesus is is talking to us and trying to communicate with us. A lot of times, we fail to miss the sarcasm that Jesus himself employed, and he employed it like a tool. We miss his jokes because we're we're not from that area. We miss the thing about the uh, the camel going through the eye of a needle is actually a joke and some stuff like that. We miss all the things that he's saying, and... And, and we make rules out of it instead of a relationship, and we, 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 we miss the passion that he has for us. I'm going to give you three examples of this that show, our, that show Jesus trying to show our genuine need for him and us missing it completely. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, let's make sure we're clear on this, because we think, we think of him like an IRS officer. And that's not exactly it at all, what he was saying to the people then. Because we have to remember that the Roman Empire had come in and viciously conquered Israel, and subjected them, and they weren't afraid. Jesus being crucified was not a unique thing. It was a common occurrence. They were not afraid to kill lots of people to, 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 to prove that they, were, that they were in charge. And they had subjugated those the the people of Israel, and so for a person to be for a Jew to be a tax collector meant that he that he he was subjugated as a conquered people. He was like a collaborator in World War II, right? Like a French collaborator in World War II who had been the French, the Germans came in, and then he, would not, he had gone over to the French side and was pointing out all his Jewish neighbors to get them onto the. He was like that guy. So for, the, for a tax collector, for a Jew to be a tax collector for the, Roman army, for the Roman Empire, meant that he was a traitor to his people, to his nation, and to his race. And more than likely, because he was a traitor and had been ostracized by all those people as such, he used that power and the threat of the power of the Roman Empire to steal... From his own people. That's why Zacchaeus later on, that's why you see that Zacchaeus said that all the people he stole from and had extorted additional taxes from, he would repay them. The reason is, is because he, just, he had charged them too much in taxes. And so when he calls Matthew, he calls people that someone would call a scum of the earth. And he says, he says, he said, but, but Matthew, notice what Matthew did, Matthew just followed him. Right there. Now, Matthew's following me and says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. That behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew had a big party. And he had a feast. And Jesus came to the feast. And we think, oh, he went over to Matthew's house for dinner. Well, not so fast. In in Oriental culture, Jewish culture specifically, in, in Eastern culture, to share a meal with somebody is to create a covenant relationship with them, to agree with them and to create a bond with them. I will protect you, you will protect me. That was part of a covenant relationship. And so for Jesus to sit down and not just have one tax collector, but all that tax collector's scummy friends, and then all of the other riffraff that would associate with them, come to a meal, meant that Jesus was creating a covenant relationship with him. For an outsider, a Pharisee, a a person who followed the law, to look at this, he would say, A, if he was really the son of God, he would know who he's dining with, and B, why is he creating a relationship with people who are clearly not good? So as the Pharisees saw it and they said to his disciples, what does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's why they were asking that. Why is he creating this relationship with him? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, listen to what he says. Now, you have to think of Jesus saying this in a sarcastic manner. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, such as yourself. I didn't come to call righteous, well people to me, but I came to call sinners, to repentance, because clearly you have no need for repentance in your life, right? Do you get what he's doing? Yeah. Now, if there's any doubt about what he's doing, what he also did is he slipped in there an Old Testament reference where, where he said, I require mercy and not sacrifice. I require love and repentance, not adherence to the law. And he was speaking to people who based their relationship with God or their sense of rightness with God based on their relationship to the law and not mercy. And he says, I haven't, clearly I haven't come for you, right? I've only come for sinners. Now, doesn't Romans 3.23 say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Huh. And all of Romans 1 is, is, is a recap of what it means to be a sinner and it's all pulled from the Old Testament that the Pharisees knew. So he was trying to get... Do you think he was, you think he was kind of going like this, to the Pharisees? No, he wasn't. No. No, he wasn't. It sounds like that, but he wasn't. Right? He wasn't doing that to the Pharisees. What he was doing is he was trying to go, clearly I'm not coming for you, right? And they'd be like, well, kind of actually. they go, well, then come on and sit down, because in reality, these guys just have an external... Everybody can see their sin, and yeah, it's bad. And don't you think I know it? But don't you think when you, when you peel off your veneer of all of your rules and religion, don't you think you have the same need for me that these guys do? You see, everybody just thinks you're okay. In reality, you're no different from them in your need for me. Let's sit down together. The, fortunately, the Pharisees didn't get it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. A certain lawyer, now a lawyer was a specific person who studied the law. Not a Pharisee, but a, a lawyer who studied the law. A lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being Jesus, never answered a question directly. He always answered a question with another question. He said to him, Well, what do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? That's basically what he said. He goes, he goes What's written in the law? What, what's your reading of it? And So the, the lawyer answered. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Did you ever wonder where the story of the Good Samaritan comes from? Here's where it is. Why did Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan? Because this guy asked this question. And he goes, what's your reading of the law? He said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus said to that? He goes, good plan. Great plan. Why don't you go do that? That's what he did. He didn't say, go do, the, do these things and you will live. He goes, great plan. Why don't you go try that? Now, what he was hoping the lawyer would say, it was, let's see, love the Lord your God with all your heart, Soul, mind, strength, and my neighbor is myself. Um, I haven't made it from breakfast like that. Right? Then he should have said, Well, clearly, I'm not doing that. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus could have told him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But instead, instead, what he did was he sought to narrow the focus to something that he could control. Notice the next thing that, that, that the lawyer said was he said, Who is my neighbor? right? He didn't say, what does it mean to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? You know why he didn't say that? Because these things are internal things that you can't judge, right? Who are you to say I don't love God with all my heart? Who are you to judge me to say that I don't love God with all my strength and all my mind? You don't know my thoughts, but you can know if I love my neighbor as myself, right? and so what he did was he sought to con- he sought to take the the definition of neighbor and narrow it down to something that he could control and he could say see i'm 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 loving these neighbors as myself that must mean everything else is good i'm okay so jesus tells him a story that's where the story of the Good Samaritan comes from. Jesus tells him a story, and the modern version of the Good Samaritan would go something like this. So there's this guy, and he's walking down the street into Britain, and he gets, and he gets mugged, and he's right there on the side of the road, and he's bleeding out. And a televangelist pulls up in his RV, and he rolls down the window and goes, wow, that looks pretty bad. You know, if you confess that you're well, you'll be well. But i got to get onto a TV taping on TBN, so off I go. And then a Christian rock artist comes by and he goes, hey, man, that looks, wow, that looks pretty bad. That, looks, that looks, looks like you're dying. But, you know, if I get in there, I may mess up my fingers and I won't be able to play my power chords tonight at the show. So I'm off. And the guy who's an ISIS recruit, that's about the equivalent. When he said a Samaritan, that's about the equivalent. A, guy, a member of ISIS comes by and goes, oh, that looks pretty bad. Let me help you out. Picks him up and he helps him out, and Jesus said, "Who is the Who is the one who is the neighbor to that guy?" And we would all have to say, oh, through gritted teeth, "The member of ISIS." That's what Jesus said when he said Samaritan. That was that's the reason why he used that, because he was trying to get the guy to go. You think you know what neighbor means? You don't even have a clue, because until you can love a Samaritan like you love yourself then you don't understand. And his goal was not to say, hey, by the way, and by the way, don't we have this? By the way, we should have an entire sermon series on loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Week three is strength, right? We should have an entire Bible study series and books that we can publish, and then go out and sell those books and how people can do this. And the whole thing was designed for the guy to go, I can't do that. And, And Jesus would go, yeah, you're right, you can't. That's why you need a savior. That was the whole point was not to lay down a set of rules, but to help him see that beyond, behind his ven- veneer of okayness, he was not okay and was in need of a savior. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. A person comes to him and says, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus first calls him out and he goes, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except the one, and that is God. Then, of course, he doesn't dispute... He doesn't dispute that the guy is talking to someone who is good. First, he defines someone as good as the only one who is good is God. And he doesn't dispute that he's talking to him. So he's trying to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. You're talking to God. He goes, why do you call me good? No one's good except the one, and that is God. But if you want to enter eternal life, well, we'll keep the commandments. Do you think he actually meant that you could enter eternal life by keeping the commandments? No, because we know from Scripture... We know from Scripture that, that that is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he washes with, re- with regeneration, and he has brought us into eternal life. So we know that we can't be saved by our own good work, but Jesus said that, and then here's what the guy says back. He goes, keep the commandments, and the guy goes, which ones? Okay, let me help you with this. You come to me and you say, hey, Dad. I want to be a good child. One of my daughters comes to me, hey, I want to be a good child. And you go, what does it mean to be a good child? Okay, well, listen. Listen, I want you to get good grades. Uh, I, I want you to respect your mom. I don't want you to lie, and I don't want you to ever do drugs. Okay, so like, like are we talking like two out of four here? <laughs> like, like, if I disrespect mom and I get good grades, uh, I, I, if I respect mom and I get good grades, it's okay if I, you know, if, I, if I'm a lying drug addict, is that okay with you? And then we're still cool? Do you think that would still be cool? No. So the guy goes, which ones? And Jesus goes, which ones? What are you stupid? He goes, which ones? He goes, and then he just, he goes, let me kind of summarize the law for this guy, because clearly, you know, he's, he's, he's not thinking correctly. He goes, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think that Jesus was giving him those things to say, these specific ones, and if you keep these specific ones, then you have eternal life? No. The Bible says that the law is not, does not have life in itself, but that the law is a school teacher to show us our need for Christ. So he was recapitulating the law, he was summarizing the law back at the guy in hopes that the guy would go, Oh, those ones. You mean if you've ever disobeyed your mom even once, you're a sinner? Yeah. If you've ever lied even once, if you've ever coveted something and been envious of another, another person, if you've ever looked at a woman and undressed her in your mind, you're guilty of adultery? Yeah, those, those. What he should have done was he should have said, well, there's no way I can inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments. And Jesus would have said, excellent. That's why I'm here. But instead... What he says was, I've kept all these from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus might have said, I don't know, perspective? (laughs) Humility? A cure for narcissism? See, the problem was, is we find out that this was the rich young ruler. And, And just like today... There was a very common thing back then. It was called a prosperity a gospel kind of thing. But the idea was that if a is that is that if you did right, God blessed you. Therefore, if you had lots of material goods, it must be because you're doing right. And he had helicopter parents who grew up all the time saying, look at all the good stuff around us. This must mean we're okay. And if we're okay, you're okay. And if you're okay, there's nothing that you haven't done that that, that falls outside the boundaries because otherwise God wouldn't continue to bless us so he grew up like a millennial thinking that he was all good and he got ribbons and awards for everything he did so he couldn't possibly comprehend the fact that that he had done anything wrong and yet he was still thinking there was something missing that's why he went to Jesus he still lacked the assurance of his salvation He goes, I've done all these things for my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Do you think that Jesus was saying that the key to salvation is to sell all your worldly goods, give it away? Was that the key to salvation? Is that how you get salvation? You sell everything and give it away? That wasn't it. What he was trying to tell him is he said, listen, your problem is that you're trusting in all of your stuff and not in the maker of the stuff. And I want to point that out to you. If you had to choose between me or your stuff, which would it be? And he formulated the question. And he formulated his statement in a way that made him choose between his things and his lifestyle or God himself. And he was hoping that he would go, I'll leave everything, just like Matthew had left everything, just like John and, and, and James had left their fishing business, just like all of those things. He had hoped that that's what he would do but instead he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions that were far more important than God. And they gave him a veneer of being okay when in fact he wasn't. And the one thing that he really needed to be rich in, which was salvation, he lacked, and therefore he was poor. How do we know that, that, that God really cared about that the most? If you read in that chapter a little bit farther on, you know, Peter and, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew had a fishing business. James and John had a fishing business, pretty successful one, by the way. And uh, they said, well, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, no one who has given up these things will not get that back from me and have eternal life. He says, I've got you. I'll take care of you. That's not the point, though. The point is not whether or not you have material possessions. The point is whether you have true riches. The reality is that we are made in the image of God. And we are made to be Christ-like. The reality is that everything that we have that is necessary for life and godliness has been provided to us. The reality is that this subject of being mended is universal because the reality is that every single one of us, you, me, Franklin, Graham, Pastor, doesn't matter, every one of us, to some extent or another, are broken and in need of mending. Now, some have been broken and are in the process of being mended. Some, your brokenness is more visible so we can see it. Others, everything looks good and the brokenness is on the inside. Behind the beamer, behind the good job, behind the good health. But every one of us until and unless we are an accurate reflection of Jesus Christ, is broken and in need of mending. And the sooner we recognize that, the faster we can get on with it. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. It says, there is there now for no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sounds like a great statement, doesn't it? It's not even the entire sentence. There's a conditional clause in it. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and being in Christ Jesus means this, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation. And by the way, there is a big difference between the idea of conviction and condemnation. Conviction, if I'm genuinely doing something wrong and I feel the size 13 Holy Spirit Doc Martin pressing on my chest that's conviction. I should get it right. Condemnation is, when I, is, is, is the idea that I am going to suffer the consequences for my action. But if I am in Christ, I have been freed from the consequences of my, of my actions, and that's what salvation actually means, is to be free from the consequences of my sin. And so I should be free from that thought of condemnation. But that is only true to the extent that I am walking or living led by the Spirit and not walking and living led by my flesh. So it is possible, even for a Christian, to be partially led by the Spirit and partially still going after our flesh. It's really easy. How many times have you driven to work, 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 work, and then the next time you're going down that road, you're not going to work, and then what do you find? You find yourself mindlessly driving to work, right? When we have 5, 8, 10, 25, 35 years of practice of following our flesh and sinning, how easy is it to break that? And to the extent that we, are, that we naturally go that way, as opposed to supernaturally be led by the Spirit, we're broken and in need of mending. See, it says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I don't need to feel con- condemnation. I don't need to go after my flesh. I have been set free. But, but, but to the extent that I am willing, to the extent that I am willing and allow the Holy Spirit to lead me, I am free. When I don't do that, I wind up acting like the broken person that I was. We don't admit it because we want everybody to think that we're okay. Getting back to Revelation, remember he said, You think that you're okay because you say you're rich and become wealthy and you have needed nothing. You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What did Laodicea have lots of? They had lots of money. Because of commerce. So they had plenty of gold. They were rich in gold, physical gold. They were rich because they were the garment center, the high-class garment center of the Greek and Roman Empire. And they were wealthy because they, had their own, they were making their own medicine, specifically in ISAB. So that's what they had going for them. Listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say, you think, and you're wretched and miserable and naked and poor and blind, and I hate you. Does he say that? He doesn't. Because that's not true. If you think think that that your brokenness means that God despises you, that is a lie. He loves you. He loves you and he proved it on the cross. Revelation chapter 3, continuing on, he says, I counsel you. He goes, listen to me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be really rich. Now, let's talk about this, each one of these pieces here. When he's talking about gold, what he means is it's the inheritance that is found in Christ. Now, let me break this down in pieces to you. The inheritance that is found in Christ is true riches. That inheritance is only possible through salvation. And that salvation is only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The reason why we don't experience the true riches of Christ is because it's only found in his presence and it requires the humility to pass through the blood of Christ to admit that I am so that I am so sinful that I needed another man to die in my place and to allow him to pour. Imagine if you were standing in front of someone and saying, you're the reason why I had to die. But I, I love you so much, I want you to be clean. And here is my blood. And I want you to take it and pour it from the top of your head all the way down and cover it. You'd be like, there's just no way I'm doing that especially if you're looking at the person who poured that blood out for you. But it requires an enormous amount of humility to say, I need that. And that is the only way that you can experience salvation, and it is the only way that you can experience the true riches of Christ. The problem is, is the true riches of Christ are found in his presence, and they require the one thing that we sorely lack, and that is humility. He says, so I counsel you, To buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be truly rich. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Listen, he's not saying these next things in order to condemn us, he's saying these next things in order to remind us of what needs to happen in our lives. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. See, I can never experience salvation until I admit that the things that I do are not the problem. I need to come to God and say, it's not the things that I've done that are wrong that are the problem. It's the person doing them that's the problem. I am the source of my sin. The sin is my symptoms, but I'm the cause. And until you can fix me, I'm just going to continue to mess up my life and other people's lives. He says, draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And until that happens in our own life and we understand the true weight of our sin, we can't understand the true weight of God's love. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, feeling very insignificant, not in the sight of other people, but in the sight of the Lord, feeling very insignificant to Him. And then what is His promise? And He will lift you up and make your life significant. The thing that is the amazing thing for a Christian is to be able to say, when you look at my life, anything good that you see, any blessing from God that you see that's happened in my life didn't come from me. Trust me, it's not my own doing. Because left to my own devices, I would be evil and selfish and hateful and lustful and all those things. But if you see anything good in my life, that is what Christ has done. And it's a free gift to me. To be able to say that, that's true riches. And by the way, the reason why we seek after riches is security. And you will find no more security. Look, money can come and money can go, right? I tell people that my checkbook is like a trampoline. It comes in and it leaves with velocity, right? (laughs) It's true, right? You're like, I'm paying my bills. It feels, right? And it's just gone, right? And... And so, right, so money can come and money can go and you get more money and it's just a bigger bounce on the trampoline, right? And, and, but that will go. And if you're trusting that for your security, let me offer you something else. There is the maker of the world who offers you security. I would suggest that your security should be found in him. He says he will lift you up and make your life significant. He says I, I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments, he's saying this to people who have the big, huge garment manufacturing industry. He says, I counsel you to buy white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, that garment, where the gold was was the, the inheritance of Christ, those garments are the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness is the, is the, is the, the concept, that, that there is the idea that I can be in the presence of God without the fear of being ashamed. A lot of us don't come into the presence of God because as soon as we think about the presence of God, we're reminded about our past. That's where there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We think about our past, and we think that if we come into God's presence, God's going to point a finger at us and go, I know who you are. I know what you did. Get out. And that is the wrong concept of who God is that's not who he is at all. The idea is that he covers us in, in the righteousness of Christ. Let me read this to you. It's actually from the Old Testament. Isaiah 61, verse 10. he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Like a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, or as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He's put his best clothes on me. See, God covers us in Christ right now. One day the sin will be taken away, but God covers us in Christ so that when he sees you walk in to his presence, he sees Jesus. And he goes, come on in, sit right here, let's talk about it. A good illustration of this from the New Testament is the story of the prodigal son. You see, when the prodigal son had taken everything from his father, his inheritance from his father, and wasted it, do we think that when he turned around to go back to his dad that he still had, you know, a snapback on and Jordans? No, he had, he went back because he was he was living in a famine. He probably had no shoes. He certainly had no shoes. He had no shoes. He was emaciated from from a famine. The dude was going to eat rotten pig food. He was probably skin and bones. He more than likely had sores on his body from sleeping in the pigsty. He had bruises and cuts on his face from being assaulted for being a Jew. He probably had dried pig dung on him. His clothes were tattered and torn, and he walked back to his father. And what does his father say? He didn't, his father didn't go, I told you that. He didn't do any of that. Listen, his father went to him, and in his muck and in his disgustingness, he pulled him to himself. And said, It's okay. And then, what is the very first thing he did? He called to one of his servants. He said, Bring him a robe and cover it over. So that when everybody else looks at him, they don't see this. They see my son. They see my child. They see royalty. And as he walked him back with his arm around, don't worry, we'll, we'll get you cleaned up, we'll get you fed. We'll take care of the sores we'll get you new clothes we'll get you right again but in the meantime when people see you i don't want them to see that i want them to see royalty i want them to see my son that's what he's saying there the picture of the christian life is not that we're we're good before we get to god because we're not and not that we're instantly good either but, but the picture of the christian life is that when we come to god and say i am weak and i've screwed everything up god says "Yep." let me take you to myself, and I'm not afraid to hold that sin close to me, because my love covers it, and I'm going to cover you over with a robe of righteousness, that's the righteousness of Christ, and then the work of the Holy Spirit is going to begin in your life, and as you walk with me closer to your day when you see me face to face in heaven, the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life, going to clean that up, going to work things out, going to get you fed, going to make you strong, that's what Christian life is all about. That's what it's supposed to be about. But guarantee you that he didn't walk back and go, Hey, i got a robe on my my shoulders. i got a ring on my finger. I must be all set. He didn't do that. He recognized that he was weak. There's a diagnostic test that we should think about here as to whether or not we have his, his righteousness on us. First of all, how are your prayers? Listen, the prayers of a righteous person sound different because they're confident that they're not going to be put to shame the person who has a sense of righteousness r- about them will sound like they actually might even be challenging God and is not afraid to remind God of his promises to them. I guarantee you that any of my kids is not afraid to walk in, walk in and go, hey, Dad, you remember you promised we were going to Rita's? <laughs> right? Do you think I go, who are you to question me? Right? Do you think I do that? Maybe every once in a while just to freak them out. But I don't really do that. Usually I go, yeah, Rita's sounds great. Yeah, let's go, right? Is that that a bad thing if they said, hey, you know, we're going to go out to dinner tonight and then afterwards we'll go to Rita's? Do you think they're going to go? Are we still going to go to Rita's? Do you think that that's something that they would? They're not afraid to do that, right? Because within the context of our relationship, I told them, are you afraid to remind God of his promises to you? He gave them to you. And reminding him of that only honors the fact that you were actually listening. So think about this. Listen to this, and this talks about, this is a New Testament version of of the robe of righteousness. He talks about putting off and putting on, and this is what he means when he talks about this. He says, this is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. This is what a a non-righteous person looks like. Fornication, uncleanness, passion. Let me explain passion for just a second. Because sometimes when we hear passion, we think, "Yeah, rock on!" That kind of passion, right? What it really means is it's a party spirit. And by party spirit, I mean <laughs> like not, no, not that kind of party. Um, you know, woohoo, let's have a birthday party. What a party spirit means is factionalism. Red state, blue state, liberal, conservative, Yankees, Red Sox. The idea of passion or a party spirit is this: is when we see another human being who's created in the image of God that doesn't hold our viewpoint, we denigrate their value. It's not just enough that you and I might disagree, but because we disagree, you are worth less than me because you disagree with me. That's a party spirit. We don't have any of that problem. I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Dramatic pause. He said... Put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which, here, in which you yourselves, let's admit it, once also walked when you lived in them. We ourselves either are or once lived in fornication, uncleanness, a party spirit, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. The sooner we admit that, the better off we'll be, especially to people who are looking to see if Christ can change them. But now you yourselves put off all these things. Anger, here's the, here's the person. This is an example of a person who's trusting in themselves. These are some of the things that wind up coming out. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds and have put on a new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or free, but Christ is all in all. The modern way of putting that is there's no black or white, male or female. I don't care about your socioeconomic status or your intellectual capacity. I don't care what job you did. I don't care where you come from. It, it's more important is about who you are in Christ. Therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, put on when you are clothed in righteousness. This is is what it looks like. And think about this. Think about if we're capable of doing this apart from Christ. Tender mercies. Kindness. Kindness means to be able to take a stranger and treat them like family. That's what the word kin comes from, kind, which is like that. That's where you get kindness from. Real humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. I must recognize that apart from Christ, I am incapable of doing any of those things. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So he says to us, By gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich; in white garments, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve. Imagine telling the Laodiceans that you say you have eye salve, but you really don't. Let me tell you what it's like to really see. That eye salve is the Holy Spirit. It is. He is the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit to be our guide and to show us what is real. Now, let me tell you, set this up, and and, and we'll finish up with this. Um, We talk about this, about the Holy Spirit giving sight to those who are spiritually blind. Let me help us think about this. You go off to the mall, and what used to be a store is now a wall, and maybe they got like a picture on it or something like that, right? What do we know? One, our store closed, right? (laughs) Two, what's going on behind there? There's new construction. They're building a new store, right? So in actuality, they built a wall, but the wall is not real because the wall is just a temporary wall. And what's really real is what's going on behind the wall that we see. Now, we can't see what's going on behind there, but what's going on behind the wall that we see is what's really real. And when that wall is removed, what's really real will be revealed. And this temporary wall, even though that's what we see, is not actually real. Right? Okay. So bottom line is something like this. The coffee's kicking in now. So um, the... <laughs> The bottom, the bottom line is this, okay? What is more real? Something that's temporary or something that's permanent? Something is permanent, just like the wall at the mall, right? That thing's just temporary. We know that that's not what's really going on. The Bible says that this world and all the things in it are passing away. It actually says that our life is like a vapor. For six weeks from now, eight weeks from now, we'll be able to go out and, go and see our life just go and like a vapor at night. It says that the whole world is like a bundle of grass that you've tied up, dried out, and chuck in the fire. How long does that last? Not long at all. But the things of God will remain forever, and his word stands, and not a single crossing of the T or dotting of the I will ever change from his word. So what's more real? The things of the spirit world or the things that we see? The very stage that I'm standing on or what's happening in, in, the, in the spirit world behind me. What's more real? Well, that is true. However, we've got a problem. We have a real problem. See, and I, the real problem here is, is found in Romans... Romans 8.26, it says, likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness. Remember, the Spirit only helps us when we're weak. If we don't think we're weak, the eh, Spirit will wait until we recognize we're weak. But he says the Spirit helps our weakness. And then he goes on to describe what that weakness is. He says, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought or as we must we do not know that word in there, and I'm the geeky person that I am. I went and looked up all the original Greek words, and I won't bore you with all the Greek words, but I'll give you the translation of it. What it means, is a visual word, a word for sight, and what it means is this. Hey, Joe, you're supposed to pray about a situation. What do I know about the situation? The only thing I know about the situation is what I see, which is the physical part. But I don't know what's really going on behind the scenes. I might see a lost job. God sees something else that he's trying to do. I might see what I think is an untimely death. God sees something else that he's trying to to accomplish. So I don't really know what's really going on unless I can see in the spirit world. And the problem is Romans 8 tells me I'm blind. I can't even not... In order to have my prayers answered... I need to be able to pray according to the will of God, right? Because if I pray anything according to God's will, I know that he hears me, and if I know he hears me, I know that I have the things that I ask of him. But how can I pray the will of God when I can't even see to even begin to understand? Because when it comes to the things that are really real, I am completely blind. I want you to think about that. If I was to just try to walk around the stage with my eyes closed, I would go very slowly and only a little ways because I know at some point... I'm going to make a really good YouTube video by walking off the edge of this. Right? And he says, we're completely blind. We don't even know how to pray. Think about that. We don't even know how to pray. And the best word in the entire Bible, but. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, which groanings which cannot be uttered. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Do you know what this is saying? If I will come to God and I'll go, okay, God, I see the situation going on. I have no idea what is really happening, and I want your will to be done in this situation. And I don't know even where to begin, but I want to pray your will, but I need to know what your will is. You know what he says? He says the Holy Spirit will come and kneel down next to you Put his arm on your shoulder and say, how will we pray about this? And he'll just drop something and he will help us and say, you can't see. But if you allow me to take you by the hand, I will lead you into what is really real. And I'll show you what you need to pray about. But it requires me like a little child putting out my hand. A grown man like a little child putting out my hand and saying, lead me. Because I have no idea what I'm doing. Ladies and gentlemen, the sooner we can get to that place, the better we have real childlike faith. The problem is, is it's really easy to have a veneer of okayness on top of that, isn't it? Paul had that veneer. He was a Pharisee. He had all those things going on, and God knocked him off his high horse, didn't he? And what was the first thing that that he did? He stood up. Not everyone else was blind. Paul was blind. Because God was trying to tell him, you think you can see, but you can't even see. And he had to be led by the hand. And it says, when Ananias prayed over him and he received the Holy Spirit, it said, like, scales came off of his eyes. I don't know if they were actually scaled or if he could just see, whatever. But what we know actually happened is that he could see things for how they really were because he could hear the voice of the Lord from that point forward. He, he was, he, most of the New Testament was written at the hand of Paul. God used him greatly. And you know what? In spite of God using him greatly, he still had problems. He still had weaknesses. He had a thorn in his flesh. We don't really know what it is. Some scholars speculate that, guess what? It was a problem with his eye that was always oozing out. Some other people think that it was all of the deformities he had from getting rocks thrown at him by people who didn't like him. Other people think it was something else that was happening. But he had had something that he called a thorn in my flesh. And he kept going to God saying, God, take this away. God, take this away. God, take this away. And God was, kept saying, nope, nope, nope. And finally said, listen, I've got a bigger plan that you can't see. Let me tell you what it is. And it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And this should be, this is one of my life scriptures. My strength is made perfect in weakness. <laughs> Not my strength is made perfect in your strength. My strength is made perfect in weakness therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Why? So that I I just look weak and bad and, and nobody loves me? No, so that the power of Christ himself can rest on me. The offer is the same to you and me today, that if we will bring our weakness to God, he will respond with the power of Christ, the same power that healed the sick and raised the dead and multiplied the fish and the loaves, the same power that took Jesus and blasted him out of the grave and conquered sin and death would rest on our lives would rest on our lives. By the way, not even a guarantee that he would take away all the bad things in our life, but that the power of Christ would rest on our lives. And so that when other people see us, they would be drawn. And I will tell you that a person who is open about their weakness, who is willing to go to God with it, who is willing to present that to him, and in turn receive the power of Christ in their life, people by the thousands will come flocking to see that because that's what a transformed life looks like. We need to recognize that to some degree, at some point in our lives, we are all this and in need of the mending of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's pray. And I would like to pray... that we would bring in the quietness of our own heart or even in our own voice, on our own breath, that we would bring these weaknesses that, it, that, it, that, that, that if God has shown you, to listen, you're holding on to this and thinking that it's strong and it's really not and you need to bring it to me. I just want to know who I'm praying for. So I want to be real specific. If you came in this morning thinking you were okay, and somehow the Holy Spirit has used these words to pierce that through, and you recognize that what I thought was strength is actually weakness. And I need to bring that to God. I need to admit to him my weakness. And I need to bring it to him. I need to ask him for his power in exchange. And when I pray, you want me to pray for you. I'm not asking you to come up here, anything like that, but what I am asking is I want to know who I'm praying for. So either just by looking up at me or raising your hand, something so that I know who I'm praying for, Okay somebody so that I know how all right fine yep okay all right okay lord i know that you love us so very much you love us so much you don't want to leave us alone you love us so much that you want to come to us and you want to make bring us to yourself cover us in righteousness And and make us right. Pour your power into our lives. It's so easy for us to trust in ourselves. It's so easy for us to 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 believe what other people say about us when they say good things about us, and to not really come to you and see what you're saying about us. I just ask right now that brothers and sisters, myself included, that you would bring those things to mind that we have thought were strengths, so that we've covered up that were actually weaknesses. That we need to bring to you right now, and that we would confess them to you as such. And just be honest with you and honest with ourselves about the current condition of our lives. Now, Lord, you would not leave us alone. You said that you wanted us to have the inheritance of Christ, your riches that you wanted us to be able to be covered in righteousness and that you wanted us to be able to see through a genuine relationship with your Holy Spirit, to be able to see and understand the things that are real in this life. I ask, Lord, that right now that you would pour out your power, that power in our lives specifically to those people who raise their hands right now. But to all of us, Lord, that we would know you in a way that we have not and in doing so that you would use us to shine your light into this lost world. Our country, our world, our families need to see what it's like to be transformed by your power. Do that in our lives right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm serious. If you're here this morning and if there's something specific that you would like us to pray for you about, uh, a couple of people be up here with me and, and myself, and we will stay here as long as we need to. Um, if if you want us to pray for you about anything specifically that that you may have raised your hand about, uh, we'll do that. I do want to address one other kind of person who's here. You may have walked in this morning and recognized at some point, either before you came in or while you were here, that you don't even have a relationship with God, and you do not have the assurance that your sins are forgiven and that you have salvation. And if that's you, I would really like to talk with you. Uh, Please do not walk out this door without the assurance that you are saved from the consequences of your sins. And you can have that assurance, and so let's just talk about it. But it's up to you to, to, to come up and talk with me. So we'll respect your decision on that. Um, the rest of us, if you're here for the first time, please see the Connections desk. We've got a gift for you guys, and uh, God bless you.